Thanks so much to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to our September 2019 program of <coughs> True Tales Live, filmed at Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98 in New Hampshire. Thanks to those watching and listening, and a very special thanks to our in-studio audience, who we are so glad to see. Give yourselves a welcoming clap. All right. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories that reflect the diversity that's in our community, personal, cultural, and help us to bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we very much encourage the development of storytelling skills, we have monthly workshops and other assistance that we give to tellers, this is not a competition. We're not gonna have any ranking or scoring tonight. We just believe that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that is why we're here. Tonight, we're gonna to hear from six tellers. Andy Davis, John Dover, Dane Peters, Monique Buchanan, Glenn Bergeron, and Nina Lasiga. Our MC, Pat Spaulding, will introduce each of them to you. And after the show, you will get to hear an interview of one of the tellers. But first, for the stories, let's welcome Pat up here to introduce our first teller. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> Good to be here tonight. First up, this is the best spot because you get it done, you can listen to all the others, is Andy <laughs> Davis. He makes his home in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and after earning his living as a cook through the 1980s, he went to Central America in the 90s to do human rights work and got his storytelling start telling comic tales by candlelight in refugee camps. Andy has since broadened and refined his craft. He has entertained audiences from Bamako to San Diego with multicultural folk tales, tall tales, shaggy dog stories, and the occasional personal tale. By day, he keeps the world safe for free thinkers, thank you, Andy, <laughs> and change makers as co-director of the World Fellowship Center a peace and justice-oriented family camp and retreat center in the White Mountains. In April, Andy was invited to tell a story at a farm market table promotional event. It had to be about food. He didn't have any stories about food. So he came up with this one titled, An Object of Displaced Affection. <laughs> Come on up, Andy. Thanks, Pat. So during the years when I was kind of a junior varsity adult, I worked for a few summers just up the coast in the main beach town of Agunquit. And one August, I got promoted to second cook at the old village inn and then decided to stay on into the fall. 
For me, working in a busy restaurant has always felt a bit like being on the deck of a sailing ship. And a dinner rush is like a storm in which the wind is blowing, the sails are flapping, everything's slippery, and you just know you have to be able to rely on the people on either side of you to get through the gale. At the old village inn, I could. We were a close-knit band of four cooks, and we all had each other's backs. There was Meredith, who wasn't out of high school yet. She was in charge of salads and appetizers. The rest of us were a little bit older. There was Brian, the grill guy, me, the second cook, and Chris, the chef, our captain. Now, Chris had been promoted at the same time as me in August when the previous chef had been fired for lechery and generalized abuse directed at the waitstaff. <laughs> now, Chris didn't have any of these characteristics, much to the contrary, actually, but he was in a little bit over his head. He didn't have the experience necessary to provide the level of cuisine the restaurant was aspiring to. But he made up for that lack with an incisive intelligence, an ironic wit, and the ability to think on his feet, which put him in charge of any situation. Oh, and it also helped that his boyfriend, Mark, was the chef at the Whistling Oyster in Perkins Cove, which was the finest restaurant in southern Maine at the time. Now, the owners of the oyster began to get a little bit grumpy when Mark's fabulous creations of one week, like the smoked duck breast with a caramelized shallot and lemongrass sauce, or the sea scallops with the coconut lime beurblanc, showed up on the Old Village Inn specials board the following week. <laughs> Mark and Chris lived past the cove on Shore Road in a little bungalow that they shared with their beautiful collie, Sabaka, who went into heat for the first time that September and word got out to every horny male dog from Kennebunk to Kittery, such that the house was constantly surrounded by stray and free-range male dogs of every shape, size, and description, such that if Mark and Chris ever wanted to break the perimeter and head into town or something, it required a little bit of strategic thinking. Well, one afternoon, I left the beach a little on the early side, so I'd have a little time in the center of town to dilly-dally before I went into work. And I ran into Meredith, the salad girl, in front of the pharmacy, and we got talking, and who should show up but Brian, the grill guy. He pulled up at the curb in his rattle-trap 1960s green Dodge Dart, and he hopped out and jumped into our conversation with gusto. And then we looked up, 
And here came Chris around the corner from Shore Road. And as he got a little bit closer, we saw he was wearing his white chef's coat and his black and white checked pants. But as he got closer still, he was coming at a pretty good clip. We saw that he was a little sweaty and disheveled and not looking really like anybody you'd want preparing food for you. <laughs> but he reached us and as he caught his breath, he told us that Mark and Sabaka had been going to accompany him on the walk into town. He was headed to work and they <laughs> thought they'd go along. But a few minutes into their walk, Mark looked over his shoulder and saw that they, it was as if they were at the head of the inaugural procession of a sort of canine United Nations. <laughs> and Mark freaked out a little bit and decided to make a break back for the house with Sabaka, leaving Chris to continue on his own. And at a certain point in Chris's walk, he got that feeling that you get when you might be being followed. And he looked back, and sure enough, right behind him was Sabaka's most ardent suitor, a big gingerbread colored dog, a big jowly flea magnet was right behind him. So, he picked up the pace a little bit and then looked back and the dog was still there. So he crossed over to the right side of Shore Road and looked back and the dog was still there. So he picked up the pace again and accelerated again and that's why he was pretty much in a flat out run by the time he reached the square. Well, Meredith and Brian and I looked at each other uh, He'd mentioned a dog and we didn't see any dog. We kind of thought maybe Chris was working a little bit too hard and starting to imagine things, but then there it was, coming around the bend from Shore Road, bigger than I'd imagined that big gingerbread colored dog with muscles rippling, <laughs> tail bobbing, jowl flapping, and it was headed right at us but it ignored the rest of us and went right up to Chris, reared up on its hind legs, wrapped its forelegs around Chris and began pistoning his hips. Well, I won't tell you we didn't laugh, but we knew that it was our job to defend our captain. So Brian and I grabbed the dog and pulled him off Chris, but the moment we let him go, he mounted Chris again. So I grabbed the dog again and pulled by the hindquarters well. Brian rummaged around in the junk in his back seat and he came up with an eight foot length of clothesline and he fashioned a bowl in, in one end and dropped it over the dog's neck and then tied the other end to the back tour handle of Brian's car. And then we all shuffled a few steps away to try to recapture the lost thread of our conversation. <laughs> but then the dog started barking rather insistently. Heads turned, fingers pointed, a crowd began to form. So Brian untied the dog and the dog wrapped Chris in another 
amorous embrace. So I pulled the dog again and Brian said, come on, let's get in the car. And Brian jumped behind the wheel. Chris jumped in the front seat. Meredith and I piled in back and Brian drove north on Route 1 past the Old Village Inn, took a right down River Road into the River Road parking lot. And then for some reason, he decided to, I guess, take further evasive action from the dog. He started doing donuts <laughs> around the middle of the parking lot. So we were all kind of leaning to the left into the turn, but then I looked up and saw the right passenger door was flapping open and Chris was gone. Well, as the car came around, we saw Chris sprawled on the pavement beginning to look up, not in control of this situation at all, as that big gingerbread colored dog came trotting triumphantly down the hill and mounted him again. <laughs> oh, Captain, my Captain. <laughs> Brian hit the brakes, we all piled out. We took a moment to take a mental picture of this situation. And then we picked Chris up and dusted him off and pushed him back in the car. And Brian drove at a reasonable rate of speed up the hill to the old village inn and pulled as close as he could get to the back door. And the three of us formed a defensive wedge and safely ushered Chris into the building. And eventually, we were able to settle into our afternoon prep routine with periodic medicinal applications of Grand Marnier to calm Chris's nerves. <laughs> and that dog circled the inn for at least an hour, whining and howling for the lost object of his displaced affection. <laughs> so, if you ever happen to be on a night out, and let's say you order the hanger steak with the red onion marmalade, and instead you get served the brick chicken with roast turnips, apples, and rosemary instead, please be patient. The people who are preparing your food might have a whole lot more going on than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Yeah, that's way more going on than I could possibly imagine. <laughs> Nor do I want to next time I go out to eat. John Dover, who now lives in Northampton, New Hampshire, grew up in Summit, New Jersey, where in high school, he felt very close to his hoodlum friends. In college, his friends were fewer in number and less delinquent. I think he found that disappointing. John majored in psychology, but wonders if perhaps he should have been a theater major. Instead, he began his working career at the Methodist Home for Children in Philadelphia, PA, where in nine short months, he learned that he did not have that special gift for working with youth. The fact did not dissuade him 
from going into the field and working as a high school guidance counselor for 38 years. <laughs> Go, John. <laughs> now, drifting haphazardly in retirement, I understand that, and wondering about life, beauty, and meaning, John will tell us a story from years past titled, Dealing with Bullies or Not. Come on up, John. When my three sisters and I would approach my mother and say, Mommy, she called me a stinking rotten brat. That was stinking rotten brat. That was the worst thing that any of us could say to the other. My mother always responded the same way. She said, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And when you're four or five and six years old, and you're like, yeah, I, I guess, right, no broken bones here. I mean, it, yeah, I guess it's right. But it was the lamest advice that she ever gave us. It was kind of like the same as just ignore it and it'll go away. It's 1968. I'm walking upstairs to the cafeteria in my dorm. And all of us at, uh, this is at Colgate University, all male school. All these guys are behind me and in front of me. I hear this booming voice, screw you, Dover. But they didn't use the word screw. They used a different <laughs> word, more collegiate. You hear it on college campuses all the time. And this put the fear of God into me because I recognized that voice. It was Gary Grossman's voice, who was a big guy, uh, lifted weights, weighed about 250, really strong and kind of a strong personality. And I didn't know why he had said this to me, but I was afraid. And so I dealt with it in a way that maybe would have made my mother happy. I ignored it, pretended it wasn't even, he didn't even say it. And I thought about it a little bit, like why is he, you know, calling me a name? And, but I ignored it. And then the next day, same thing. Screw you, Dover. And you think I turned around and said, Gary, what's up? Like, are you upset with me? No, not a word. Didn't even turn around even though I knew who it was. And this seemed to go on day after day. And inside, like I was a basket case. My, my stomach was tight. And, but I didn't know what to do because I felt like if I confront him, then maybe it's gonna get out of hand and he's gonna beat me to a bloody pulp. And that seemed to be what would happen if I did that? So it was better to ignore it. But then I, you know, it, it was really getting to me and I'd, I'd be awake at night thinking about how I could kill him because that was the only real option, right? <laughs> um, and, um, and I couldn't really think of a way to do that. But things came to a head. I was, um, uh, so again, this is 1968, way before cell phones. So we had um, pay phones every other floor uh, in our college dorm. 
And I had gone up to the third floor of Crawshaw to call this girl that I'd met from Oswego. Um, and uh, the conversation seemed to be going well until I hear Gary Grossman's voice and my name and laughter. And I'm like, I gotta do something. I cannot let this go on anymore. So I say goodbye to whoever and I go out into the hallway. I'm sputtering with rage. And there's Gary, and it was, he's sitting down uh, kind of in an alcove um, against the wall, and he's got his coterie of followers surrounding him. And so I march into them. Again, I'm, I'm sputtering with rage, out of control. And I, I don't know what to do. So I say, Gary, you gotta stop! And this elicits laughter from the coterie of followers. And so I'm, I'm feeling even worse. And uh, Gary looks up at me and he's, he's leaning back against the wall. His, so his, his chair is you know on, on edge. And he's got this big smile on his face. What are you gonna do about it? He says to me. And of course, I don't know what I can do about it. I, 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 think, well, I think I could get one good punch in before he beats me to a bloody pulp. But I like, I don't want to do that. Um, so I just repeat this inane phrase, Gary, you have to stop this. And each time I say this, there's like this laughter from his coterie of followers. And I am feeling so humiliated. Oh, it's awful. And it becomes, I guess, kind of boring because the guys start to walk away. And it's just Gary and I that are left there. And he's still got this grin on his face. What are you gonna do about it? And I realize I can't do anything about it. So at that point, it feels like it's over. And I just walk away with my tail between my legs, feeling maybe the worst I've ever felt in my whole life, so defeated. And here's the really weird thing. Gary never again spoke ill of me. That was the last time that we really had much of an interaction. I saw him be mean to other people, but it was the last time he ever said anything to me. And so I think, you know, I kind of felt, well, maybe in some kind of strange way, I sort of found my voice. And, that, and I even wondered, was he doing this so that I could learn how to do that? Or was he just seeing how far he could go? I don't know, because I, we, I, we never talked about it. I was curious about this. So a, a year or two ago, I found his address uh, and sent off an email to him. He lives out in California, has a business and said, basically, Gary, I don't know if you remember my name, John Dover, we were in the same dormitory, Crawshaw. Um, wonder if we could like, you know, chat through email. Heard nothing from him at all, nothing. And so all this time has elapsed. And I, I guess in a way, I should be saying thankful, I'd be saying thank you to him. So in case you're listening, Gary.
here's the message. Screw you too, Grossman! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, John. That was definitely a learning experience. <laughs> Next up, we've got Dane Peters. He lives with his wife, Chris, in Greenland, New Hampshire. A longtime lover of parenting, teaching, leadership, and writing, Dane tells stories, writes articles, keeps a long-running blog, Dane's education blog, is the author of two books, and he still consults with schools throughout the U.S. and China. Although with his and Chris's devotion, oh, oh sorry, along with his and Chris's devotion to their four grandchildren, Dane is devoted to finding purpose by volunteering with community organizations. He is the vice president of the Seacoast Repertory Theater Board of Trustees and is a member of Senior Repertory Theater, an acting troupe for senior citizens. Dane reads to children at least once a week and he loves to tell stories at True Tales Live like this one titled, How I Learned to Work with Children. Come on up, Dane. Thank you, Pat. So how I learned to work with children, I've been thinking about this for a long time. But I do have to say that Catherine Tucker Wyndham's four L's have been really the underpinnings of how I do what I do. The listening, the learning, the laughing, and the loving. It is just magnificent. So as a child, as a parent, as a teacher, and now as a grandparent. I have been working on how to work with children learning. And it's taken me over 50 years. But when I came to the age of 54, it happened. And you might ask, well, what, 54, it took you that long? Yes, that was the time I went from traditional education. I was born and raised in public education, but then after I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, my elementary education degree took me to private schools because there were no jobs in 1975 in private schools. So I started working in private schools, but it was very traditional education. And after, well, by the time I got to 54, uh, I was looking to enough for another job because my wife and I, the kids were out of the house and my wife and I were at a point where, well, let's try something new. And so I was looking for a school to head a school. And I bumped into a guy who was a headhunter for private schools. And he said, I've got a place for you to go. It's a school in Boston. And uh, why don't you go? They're looking for a head of school. And I said, yeah, okay, what kind of... He said, it's a Montessori school. Monta what? It's a Montessori school. I knew nothing about it. I mean, I've heard of Dr. Maria Montessori, but I didn't know that there was a school just for that. So I get there. I, the interview is about to start, but first I'm taken on a tour of the school. So we go to a primary section or a preschool section. That's three, four, and five-year-old kids. And we walk in the door. And the kids are all busy. They're all engaged in some kind of activity with their hands or looking or 
but they're really engaged. And I asked the guide, isn't there a teacher here? And she looks and says, oh, there she is over in the corner. See, she's on the floor working with a child. And I said, how can that be? I mean, why are the children working and the teacher isn't in front of the classroom? Because the only thing I knew was a teacher stands in front of the classroom and teaches. And that's how you learn. And if you listen to the teacher, you might learn something. But if the teacher isn't there, no way. And I've now become to know that as the sage on the stage way of teaching. If the teacher isn't there, you ain't learning a thing. But there was no teacher in front of the class here, but the kids looked so engaged. They were working with manipulatives. They were working with letters and pencil and paper. And these are three, four, and five-year-old kids. So I'm really into this now. And with my own children as a parent, uh, I can still remember they were playing on the floor with Lincoln logs. Do you remember those? And Legos. And if I saw them just sort of trying to figure it out, I'd get down on my knee and I'd take the material right out of their hand and I'd say, no, here, here's how you do it. Again, sage on the stage. And I'd give it back to them and I'd step away and they'd go about their business. And, but that's the way I knew it. And as I taught, I taught the same way in the classroom. But this Montessori thing, when I got to the Montessori school, I went to a second Montessori school for an interview, and it was the same thing. I mean, the teachers basically weren't in sight. And I find out that Dr. Maria Montessori said, I know the children are learning when they don't know I'm in the room. That's when they're learning. And so I'm figuring all of this out. Finally, I go to a third school for an interview, and it's in Brooklyn, New York. And I get really excited because as soon as I walk through the door, the love in this building was palpable. The love between the children and the teachers and the love between the children and other children. It was just incredible. I had never felt this before in 30 years of teaching and in parenting. So I get there and uh, I'm, I was invited and I came and I was the head of school. So in the first few months, I'm trying to figure this all out, this Montessori thing all out. So I'm in one of the preschool classrooms and I watch the kids working just as I saw on that guided tour. And I see a, a child, a girl working on a mat on the floor and she had a letter in her hand. And I could see she was thinking, trying to figure it out. And of course I go right over and I get down on my knee and I pull the letter out of her hand and I say, no, no, here, you wanna do this, 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 this. Sage on the stage, that's the only way it works. Well, I backed off and I got out of the classroom and the person who was the head of the preschool took me aside and said, Dane, come here. You don't do that. A, in a Montessori classroom, anywhere, but in a Montessori classroom, it's about the child. You respect the child and the sooner you give the child his or her independence, that's when you have succeeded. And I say, oh, and this is a person that works for me. But boy, she let me have it. <laughs> I mean, she just said, you will not do that. But that's what I needed at 54. That's what I needed. And after so many years of doing it the traditional way, the sage on the stage way.
I wanted to be a guide on the side, whether it was with kids or with adults. I, I bought this hook, line, and sinker because that's the way it should be. And I said, thank you, thank you very much. And that's really how I then, for the next 11 years, worked in a school environment, trying to be the guide on the side and helping teachers, especially new teachers, understand what it is to be a guide on the side and to help children become independent as soon as possible. But one of the most beautiful things about a Montessori environment is that it's a safe place to fail because it's failure that helps us learn and to move forward. It's just so important. But if you can fail and not feel recrimination, then okay, I'm going to keep trying and I'm going to be creative. Well, move forward a little ways and we move to Greenland, New Hampshire. And so I don't have this Montessori environment anymore, but I'm very fortunate because our two grandchildren go to a Montessori school. And every once in a while, uh, the kids help me. They, they let me know when I'm trying to be a sage on the stage, not just my grandchildren, but whenever I go and read to kids. So I was at the Seacoast Community School where I read 10 a.m. every Thursday morning and uh, to the three, four, and five-year-olds. And I was introduced as Dee Dee. That's what I want kids to call me because that's what my grandchildren have named me, Dee Dee. And uh, so there was this one child working at a desk and I go up to him, he's like four years old, and I sit down with him and he's working with something. I don't touch it. <laughs> and he's working and um, I said, what's your name? And he said, Josh. And I said, oh, my name is Dee Dee. Without batting an eye, he looks at me and he goes, is that with two Ds? <laughs> I said, yes. And again, this reinforces, you know, these kids are smart. They know. Another time it happens where Chris and I are coming out of Trader Joe's. We had just finished shopping. And our neighbor with a one-year-old and a three-year-old daughter, one-year-old son, three-year-old daughter, they're pushing their cart out and said, hey, hi, how are you? And I said, let me, let me help you with the groceries. And so I'm taking it out of the carriage and putting it in the back of the car. And uh, the little girl, I look at her and I look in her eyes. I say, God, you have the most beautiful blue eyes. And she kind of looks at me like, yeah, okay, I know that. But I didn't, nothing. And I said, you know, I have blue eyes too. And she looks at me and she goes, yeah, but my nose isn't that big. <laughs> I said, her mother's dying a thousand deaths. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. But the coup de grace was when my son came home one day, he took out his, to his house where Chris and I were taking care of the girls. He takes out his iPhone and there's a picture of his dog, the dog, the family dog on it. And then he touches it and the dog's lip starts moving and they say, hey, Dane, get a life. And I said, do that again. He does. Hey, Dane, get a life. And I'm just dying laughing. And of course, the two girls are looking like, it's not that funny. You know, they didn't say that, but I could see it on their faces. But I'm just bursting out laughing. Well, move forward two months from that point, And Chris and I are driving the kids to school. The two girls are in the back seat. 
and we're going along and I said something that I thought was pretty funny and I'm laughing and laughing and then I stop and Chris is rolling her eyes like dang that wasn't that funny in the back the three-year-old says hey Dane get a life <laughs> the three-year-old and that keeps reminding me that the learning is going to come with listening with laughing and love thank you Yeah, those Montessori kids, they're not just smart, they're funny. <laughs> Senses of humor are getting uh, educated with that independent thing. All righty, we've got Monique, Monique Buchanan up next. She's from Exeter, New Hampshire. Monique worked for over 20 years in the profession of business communication. However, she has always wanted to use her writing talents for something more creative. Having recently embarked upon a journey of self-employment, <laughs> I've been on that journey, as a life coach and freelance writer, Monique looks for and finds different opportunities for public speaking. She joined Toastmasters, where she has gained more confidence in stage presence, as she explores various ways to continue, continually grow as a writer, storyteller, and speaker. Last April, Monique received the heartbreaking news that her ex husband died in his sleep from a deadly combination of prescription drugs and alcohol. He was just 48 years old. This inspired her to write a story about, about how people she loves who were consumed by alcohol have affected her life. Tonight, she will share a personal tale titled Love and Alcohol. Come on up. I was sitting in a cafe right here in Portsmouth with James and we're having lunch and we're both feeling nervous because it's the first time we'd seen each other in 18 years. The last time we'd seen each other was in upstate New York in a boarding house. I was newly single and he was finishing up college. Uh, we were roommates for a few months, we became friends and then we became lovers. Um, I liked him a lot at that time, and more than liked him. Uh, but I had the suspicion that he was really only interested in me when he was bored. Um, he graduated and left New York and didn't contact me again, and all I knew was that he had moved to New Hampshire. So I was surprised when he reached out 18 years later through the internet and uh, to contact me, and we discovered that we lived not even 50 miles apart. So we decided to meet for lunch. Um, I, he looked good, and I knew that he had survived cancer, that he had divorced twice, and that he had two children. And the person across from me was kind and thoughtful and uh, had a great, easy to laugh and great to talk to, just the way that I remembered him from back then. When the waitress cleared away our dishes, he said to me in a very serious way, I'm really sorry that I didn't see you for who you truly were back then. 
but I was an alcoholic and I couldn't appreciate you. So I just wanted to let you know that, but I am sober now for 10 years. So his confession made me feel brave to say my own truth. So I said, you know, I was in love with you back then. He says, well, I'm sorry, if not for my drinking. And I said, it's all right. Um, I brushed off all that anguish that I had felt back those years ago about the way he would turn off and on around me or disappear, but then show up, you know, wanting to seek a cuddle more. Um, and the disappointment I had felt when he said that because of a bad breakup he'd gone through recently, he really couldn't commit to anyone. But he said, no, it's not all right. And um, I'm really sorry that I, I caused you any pain. I had learned from experience that um, I, not to expect too much from alcoholics, that my experience with them, uh, disappointment and pain were the main themes. So I remember one day, I was around 10, and I was playing over at my friend's house, and her mother, uh, Stephanie, who was a friend of my mother's, sat me down at her kitchen table, and she said, um, your mom has a drinking problem, she um, might be an alcoholic, and she proceeded to tell me about AA, and that they could help her. And I wasn't surprised when she told me this, but I was ashamed. I had noticed for a while that she would leave glasses of wine throughout the house, and they'd be perched up on the mantel place or on a sideboard, and I was just thinking maybe she just forgot that she had been drinking at one point and forgot that she left her glass there, so I didn't know. But Mom was raising three kids by herself. Uh, she and my dad had separated when I was around seven, and she was barely surviving on a salary as a secretary. To me, my mother was invincible. She was really tall. She was six feet. She was uh, slender, but had these strong hands and feet. And she was a very proud person with a very strong but silent strength and determination. And she shouldered all this struggle by herself. So wanting to be kind, I decided to mention that I had noticed these glasses. And at dinner one night, we happened to have guests over. I said, oh, by the way, Mom, you left your glass of wine. It's upstairs in your bedroom. And she gave me this look that said, um, it's none of your business, and don't embarrass me like mm -hmm. this. So I learned to keep quiet about my mom and drinking. Um, but I sat with this knowledge and, um, uh, you know, Stephanie had confirmed that it was true. So I kept quiet about it for many years, but the more you don't talk about such a problem, the heavier it starts to weigh on you. I remember as a teenager that my friends would come over and sometimes they stay for dinner. And by that point, my mom would be too drunk to drive, but they would need a ride home. And so they'd have to call their parent. And I knew they knew. And so I was really embarrassed. I learned that she was not reliable and that she was a liar. I mean, she was a secret drinker, so she tried to sneak the drinks when she thought I wasn't noticing. But 
I knew, you know, I could hear the glug of the wine when she poured it or the clink of the glass when she would set it down. And those were the telltale signs. And sometimes really early in the morning, I could smell it on her breath. Some days, I just felt like I was angry at her all the time for her lack of self-control, for her not caring enough to stop drinking, for not admitting that she even had a problem, for making me grow up too fast and for limiting me in a way, for seeing her live with her depression and her not doing anything about it. But she never stopped drinking, and when she died at age 73, colon cancer, it was kind of a relief. She wouldn't have to suffer anymore, and I wouldn't have to witness the suffering anymore. But I was determined to never be like her. Throughout my teen years and later, when I would go out with friends for a drink, I'd only go and have one or two drinks, never let loose, never wanted to be drunk. I was just afraid, I think, of what might happen. And I didn't particularly like to drink or the way it made me feel. So in my early 30s, I married Paul, and he um, appealed to my romantic notion of the tortured artist-musician type. Uh, he wore his heart on his sleeve, but um, and hid, hid some pain. You could see he was hiding some pain so deeply, but it seemed that only I could maybe appreciate what that was. Um, he was moody, had a dark sense of humor, could be crass, but then had this soft, bruised core that he would sometimes be willing to reveal to you if he trusted you. He could also be the life of the party, was quick to make a joke, could charm a room full of people, and love to have people around him. Not even a year later after marrying, my, I was sitting with my boss having lunch, Dwight, and he said, I was telling him about my life, and he said, it sounds like your husband has a drinking problem and might be an alcoholic. And Dwight would know, because he was newly sober. Um, like Stephanie, I think he just wanted to let me know what I was up against. Um, so I didn't know this when I was 10, but Stephanie's husband was an alcoholic. Later in his life, he would actually drink himself to death. So I told myself when I knew this um, that I could look past Paul's drinking. It wasn't not a problem, but we could make it work. I became his designated driver. There were times when I could have used some stress relief. Not that I would have gone drinking or you know, getting high, but I just wanted to have fun too. But for Paul, having fun meant partying, and that meant drinking. So I learned to put my own needs aside, and, and uh, we had this kind of codependent relationship where he needed me and I needed to be needed, so it worked for a while, but I walked away from that marriage in my mid-40s. And I started to teach myself that it was okay to not always be responsible, to be carefree, and to have more fun. When I got the call last April from Paul's cousin that Paul had passed away, I wasn't entirely surprised. Uh, we hadn't talked for a while, but information had filtered down that he had checked himself into a, a home or re recovery center in a, for a few times, but I guess it just didn't take. His depression and the alcoholism did get the better of him, and he um, went to sleep and didn't wake up. So I don't think I could tell this story. It's a hard story to tell, but I don't think I could if not for James. When I had that lunch in the cafe with him, it, it was like a breath of fresh air. 
Finally, there was someone who cared enough about me to understand what they had put me through. It was someone telling me the truth about themselves. Up to that point, I felt that I had to fight for that. But without even asking for it, he gave it to me. He cared enough to find me. He saw me clearly for the first time that lunch, at that lunch, and something happened. A spark was ignited. Uh, not long after that day, James and I began dating, and we married. Now we've been married for five years. But since then, uh, the years of feeling like a victim of other people's depression and alcoholism has been put into context, and I'm very grateful for that understanding. I can now feel empathy rather than anger for James and Paul and my mother. I know that what they went through was probably much harder than I could ever know. On one hand, because depression and alcohol, um, two people I loved had tortured lives and died before they were able to fix that. My relationship with both of them was quite strained. I think their drinking kept me at arm's length, so I never really got to know who they truly were. But on the other hand, thanks to AA, thanks to James's recovery, he came back into my life, and <clears throat> we got a second chance to do things right. And so we're just moving ahead one day at a time. I love the fact that we have second chances and third chances and fourth and fifth. And we learn from failure. All good stuff. Next up, we have Glenn Bergeron. He lives with his wife, Trudy, in Greenland, New Hampshire. He is a retired tool and die maker who worked at the Portsmouth Navy shipyard for 45 years. Alongside that, Glenn had a very interesting second career. For 26 years, he worked at and eventually managed the Rockingham Ballroom in Newmarket, New Hampshire, an active dance hall owned and operated by his parents for 37 years. Glenn remembers many stories from those ballroom days, one of which he told a while back. But tonight, he will share some other memories, discoveries actually, that involve a set of curious circumstances that connect his life to those of the World War II heroes, the five Sullivan brothers. Glenn discovered several surprises beyond coincidence that came to light for him over generations. He hopes you'll help him understand why and how these revelations connect his life to that of the five famous heroes in his story, Five Amazing Facts. Come on up, Glenn. Way back in the uh, mid-1950s, when we were growing up, my brother and I used to watch a lot of war movies. We really enjoyed them, all types. The more patriotic, the better. And there's one movie that was really a favorite of ours, and that was called The Fighting Sullivans. And it is a story, a true story, 
Of the five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, uh, Iowa, who were uh, brought up together, they played together, they worked together, joined the Navy together, and unfortunately, all five died together when their ship, the light cruiser USS Juno, went down on the Solomon Islands in 1942. The five Sullivan brothers' names are, from oldest to youngest, is George, Francis, Joseph, Madison, and Al. They, uh, it was an interesting story, a very poignant story, with a tragic ending. When they all died in the movie, the camera superimposed them onto the uh, screen and onto the sky. They were standing there in their uniforms, looking down at us, smiling, waving, and then all five turned, and then together they walked up to heaven. When the end finally shone across the, the screen, both my brother and I were in tears. As I was wiping away one tear, I said to myself, boy, would I have loved to have known those guys. Ten years later, I joined the Navy. And my first duty station was the San Diego Bay ship, the USS Lyman K. Swenson 729. It was an old ship. It was a leftover from World War II. After we went to combat training, we had orders to go to Vietnam. Two days out at sea, I was walking down through the midship passageway of the ship, and I happened to notice a plaque hanging on the bulkhead. So I looked at the plaque, and uh, it had the picture and a, uh, a small bio of the person that our ship was named after, Lyman K. Swenson. And what drew my attention to him was the fact that this guy had a striking resemblance to my grandfather. It was uncanny, the, the resemblance. He had the same eyes, lips, nose, chin, everything. It was like I was looking at my grandfather. And uh, he was age appropriate too, just about the same age. So as I was looking at that, I said to myself, ooh, what an interesting fact. And then I started reading his, reading his bio. And it said, Lyman K. Swenson, Captain United States Navy, killed when he went down with his ship, the light cruiser USS Juno, on the Juno. That's the ship the Sullivan brothers were on. Swenson was the captain of the ship that the Sullivan brothers were on. My heroes. 650 ships were in the Navy at the time I was in. The Navy assigned me to the one ship that had a direct tie to the Sullivan brothers. I'm going, how? How did they know? What, what did they do? Are you kidding me? <laughs> talk about fortuitous action. Boy, talk about a, um, talk about, uh, a fortunate incident that made one guy a happy sailor. Well, after my four years, I got out of the Navy, and I did what other uh, veterans did. I joined the American Legion and the VFW. And the VFW post I joined was the Emerson Hovey Post 168 right here in Portsmouth. So being a local person, I decided to do a little research on Emerson Hovey. Come to find out that he was a local boy born and raised in Portsmouth, and as soon as he got his commission, 
he was killed in action in the Philippines in 1911. The Navy, in order to honor his service, named a ship after him, the Emerson Hovey DD-208. He was a small destroyer that was built in 1919 and served the fleet until 1945. Now, the reason why I'm giving this a little aside to you right now is because of this. Before the five Sullivan brothers joined the Navy together in 1941, the two oldest brothers, George and Francis, had prior military service. George and Francis joined the Navy in 1936, and they were assigned to the same ship. <laughs> Guess what ship that was? The Emerson Hovey, DD-208. The same Emerson Hovey at our post was named after. And then I was thinking to myself, wow, I joined the Navy, was assigned to a ship that had a direct tie to the Sullivan brothers. The Sullivan brothers, George and Francis, joined the Navy, were assigned a ship that had a direct relation to me. We came full circle. We complimented each other. I stopped reading. My heart was pounding. And I'm saying, oh my god, it's happening again. Well, that piqued my curiosity. I wanted to read more about the Sullivan Brothers now. So I got a book, and I read, and it said the Sullivan Brothers were on the Juno, which was a light cruiser. That light cruiser had six 5-inch 38 twin mounts uh, for a main armament. My ship, the Swenson, we had three 5-inch 38 twin guns on ours. The same exact guns as was on the Juno. The same exact turret size with the same exact personnel in that turret. 14 men per turret. Joseph, Madison, and Al were assigned to those gun mounts on the Juno. That was their duty station at general quarters. They handled the ammunition and they loaded those 5-inch 38 guns. My job on the Swenson was in one of those gun mounts, I was handling ammunition and I was loading those same identical 5-inch 38 guns. Our general quarter station and our jobs were the same. I put that book down, and then I said, militarily, I'm in lockstep with the Sullivan brothers. I know that. But in order for this to be something special, if I have a special connection to these guys, then I feel that I should be connected with them in another way other than the military. And that brings me to the fifth and probably the, the most amazing fact. In the Sullivan family, there were five brothers. The oldest was George, and the youngest was Al. In the Bergeron family, my family, we have two siblings, my older brother Dave and me, Glenn. My older brother's middle name is George. My middle name is Al. Coincidence, you say? Maybe one or two facts, but all five? 
the odds of all those five facts happening to me or to any other sailor has got to be in the millions, maybe even the billions. I don't know. No, folks, I, there's something happening here, something that I, I don't know. It's some force or some power that's doing this. And I think it's the same force or power that took two families from different parts of the country and from a different generation and somehow pulled this together and had this fabulous bond. But I want to tell you this, folks, that when I wake up every day and I do my normal chores, I'm not really concerned about these facts. It doesn't, it doesn't get me down. And contrary to what you may think, I rarely think of it. But when I do, I'm extremely proud and extremely fortunate to have this warm, tender association with these heroes that I believe no one else has. And that, ladies and gentlemen, puts a smile on my face. Thanks, Glenn. That um, makes me want to see that movie, <laughs> Sullivan Brothers. Nina Lasiga, uh, from Stratford, Connecticut. <laughs> um, she's lived most of her life in Brooklyn, New York, however. Following a 30-year career as a corporate chemist, she is now a storyteller and ukuleleist whose passion is to create immersive experiences for learning and entertainment. Nina has told stories all over New England at Massmouth, the Northeast and White Mountain Storytelling Festivals, the Granite State Story Swap, and right here at True Tales Live. In Bridgeport, Connecticut, she is co-organizer of Bachakacha Night. Yes, Bachakacha Night. Um, visual storytelling, which she will tell us more about in the interview after this show with David. Tonight, Nina will take us along on a New York City adventure. So hold on tight. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Let's hear Nina's story, Uncovered. Come on up, Nina. I've heard about the New York City No Pants subway ride. It's an international day of silliness where people get onto a train and take off their pants in January. <laughs> I saw all kinds of photos and videos. It looked like such fun, but I never saw any plus size people doing it. <laughs> I feared the public's reaction, and so I never thought I would. Now, I'm a person who loves a good adventure. I'm a solo traveler. In Vietnam, I was at my hotel, and my tour guide came up and said to me, it's time to see my beautiful city. Hop onto my motorbike. 
at 57, I had never ridden a motorcycle before, and I feared that my size would cause us to tip over. She said, don't worry, I've got you. I got on. I loved it. <laughs> From that day onward, I decided to bring more physical adventure into my life. When I returned home on social media, I came across an invitation to do the no pants ride in New York City. I replied yes. <laughs> then I called all my family and friends and invited them to come along with me. And one at a time, they said the same thing. You're on your own. <laughs> but this was important to me and so I started to plan my outfit. I went to my dresser and pulled out my panty drawer. And I couldn't find one pair of panties suitable for this purpose. <laughs> I needed to go shopping. And I brought home a few different pairs. And in front of a full-length mirror in my bedroom, I stood with a digital camera in my hand. And I took photographs of myself because I wanted to make sure I saw what other people were seeing. <laughs> I wanted this to be a quality experience for us both. <laughs> then, to manage the risk of clothing malfunction, I tried on each pair of panties with a different pair of slacks. I wanted to make sure things stayed covered to the best of my ability. And I found a terrific combination. I picked the leopard silk panties with wide leg black pants. I was ready. I took public transportation from home in Connecticut to New York City. And there are five different meeting points in the city for the no pants ride. I picked the Lower East Side. People welcomed me with open arms. They said, you can do this. And I thought to myself, I just spent three hours getting here. I am taking off my pants. <laughs> now, this is not a haphazard project. There's a lot of planning that goes behind this. I attended orientation. <laughs> and yes, we were put into teams. And each team is assigned a particular subway car. And it is designed so that within five or 10 minutes of starting this activity, there are no pants riders throughout the New York City subway system. <laughs> Each no pants soldier is given a subway stop to get off. And the stop before, you're to take off your pants and exit the train wearing your hat, gloves, scarf, coat, and underpants. And if anyone asks you, why don't you have any pants on? You're to make up some kind of really polite reply that doesn't reveal the stunt. For example, why aren't you wearing your pants? I forgot mine. <laughs> 
I chose team 10 because I wanted bragging rights that I was a 10. And we went to the subway. And in the subway, I met a gentleman who was bearded and tall and handsome. And he was wearing the most exquisite pair of bunny ears, high-end bunny ears. I complimented him on his kilt. He said it works really well because it's hard to take your pants off over laced shoes. And down in the subway platform, I noticed he was holding a brown paper bag from which he pulls out a bottle of pink champagne. He expertly uncorks that champagne, takes a long swig, and then passes it over to me. Not wanting to offend his kind act of hospitality, I drank it too. <laughs> well, it was Sunday, and Sunday is notorious in New York City for train delays and construction. And this was no exception. When the train pulled up, it was horribly, horribly packed. And I watched as my team members like pushed their way into the subway car. And I thought to myself, sometime during my life, my mother told me not to get on a crowded train and take off my pants. <laughs> I stood there. The doors closed, and I was by myself. And I thought, you might have to stop this project right now. You need to abort it, because when you go onto the next train, you will be the only person taking off their pants. <laughs> and don't you know, the next train came right away, and it had lots of room in it, and I got, oh, my heart's beating, and I don't know what to do, what should I do? And I just said, well, get in. So I get in, and I hold on to the pole. And I look to the right, and I look to the left. Then I stick my thumb into my elastic waistband and pull it out and pull one pant leg down and step out and change hands. And then I do the same with the other pant leg. And I am pantless. And I look to the side. And seated is this elderly Asian man with shopping bags. And he has this look on his face like, now I've seen everything. <laughs> I was sure everybody was looking at me. And I glanced around, and they weren't. <laughs> Weeks of worrying. I was in awe. My leopard print panties were lost amongst a sea of everything unusual on the New York City <laughs> subway. I rode the jolting train to Union Square where I met hundreds of other no-pant riders to celebrate and take Instagram photos. And what I learned is on the New York City no-pants ride, everyone is welcome regardless of their body size. Come along, I'm doing it again next year. Thank you.
Should we start one here, Portsmouth? <laughs> what, the trolley? Right. <laughs> Have to think that through. Thanks so much to all of tonight's wonderful storytellers and to our studio audience. We are so glad to have been here tonight with all of you. Coming up next, we are going to hear an interview that David Frainer will do of Nina Lasiga. Uh, but first, I have some information I want to be sure you know. Our next show will be on Tuesday, October 29th. It has the theme of Come Hell or High Water. We do have room for tellers that month and also in November. So let us know, True Tales Live NH, the number one, at gmail.com if you are interested. Also, the dates and themes for our 2020 shows are all out there now, so you can start letting us know which of those you might want to sign up for. If you are interested in telling a story here, we would love it for you to come to one of our workshops. Even if you're not sure you're interested, but you might be interested or whatever, we welcome you to come. They are the, um, let's see, the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9 p.m., free and open to everyone. The next one is October 1st. Uh, is here at PPM TV, 280 Marcy Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime as video on demand. In fact, you can go to our website, truetaleslivenh.org, and you can just easily click buttons to listen or watch or find out more. So go there for all the options. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, David Frainer, Chad Corner, Cordner, sorry, and Sam Adams. <laughs> I am Amy Antonucci, signing off until our next True Tales Live show. Stay tuned for David's interview of Nina, and thank you very much. <laughs>